Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian, Letter Editor of the Weekly Standard, and this is my weekly podcast on the books and arts section of this week's issue of the Weekly Standard, and we are talking at the moment about the issue of July 14th, where the lead piece is a... Um, review of a new book by the British philosopher Roger Scruton, S-C-R-U-T-O-N, written by Dominic Green. The book is called The Soul of the World by Roger Scruton, published by Princeton University Press, and I can describe it in 25 words or less, which is that one thing we know from the history of humanity, and especially the history of modern humanity, modern humanity being the last couple thousand years, is that <clears throat> all work and no play, in effect, makes Jack a dull boy. In other words, um, sheer logic, sheer plain science, nothing but data and numbers, uh, doesn't seem quite to add up for human beings, and some element of the sacred, however you want to put it, the magical, the religious, the divine, uh, is always essential um, in the human, the, to, to define the human spirit and what makes life worth living for human beings. Sounds like a sort of uh, familiar um, religious argument, especially nowadays when we have these sort of canned debates between professional atheists and professional uh, religious people. But uh, Scruton makes a good point, and he is not only one of the our time's most uh, interesting writers on philosophical questions, but he is one of the most graceful uh, philosophical writers, not just in our time, but in any time. Any book by Scruton is worth reading just for the sheer pleasure of reading it. And even if you don't agree with his thesis, even if you uh, want to disagree with it, um, it, The Soul of the World is a fascinating and accessible volume that uh, uh, I think would be of interest to anybody, no matter what your point of view is. Dominic Green does a fine job of, of showing us exactly um, how and why Scruton makes the arguments he, he does, but all in all, a book well worth looking at. And that is followed by something well worth listening to, if you have any interest in American music in general, and um, what I suppose should be called country music in particular, but it's a piece by Colin Fleming about a new um, uh, assemblage of uh, uh, recordings of radio uh, programs from 1950 by Hank Williams Sr. Uh, Collins says toward the beginning of the piece that um, we all have a general idea of what country music is, country and western music, or however configuration you want to mention. Hank Williams is clearly falls into that category, but in some ways transcends it. And in his very brief 29-year life, um, he wrote uh, some of the most memorable songs in the American 
I want to say it's songbook, but when we say that, we usually mean Tin Pan Alley, sort of Broadway and show um, musical uh, uh, songs. But but if you made a list of the top 50 American songs of all time, I suspect a, one or two, maybe even a handful of Hank Williams would, would uh, make the cut. And this is uh, probably done at the height of, of his powers. They're from 1950. He, of course, died on New Year's Day, 1953. And um, whether or not Hank Williams' voice uh, and w way of playing and manner of playing and singing is to your taste, this is obviously an important discovery, and it's, it's great we live in an era when such things can all be reduced to the... Um, to the size of a of a single uh, CD or CD set, but anyway, this is a whole trove of of undiscovered Hank Williams music, which, um, as I say again, you don't have to be a country music fan, and if truth be told, I'm not in particular, um, to appreciate Hank Williams. That is followed by a longish essay by Micah Maddox, a frequent contributor to our pages on a biography of a British poet called Vernon Scannell, who died just a few years ago. He was born in 1922. And I'm embarrassed to say the book, incidentally, is called Walking Wounded, The Life and Poetry of Vernon Scannell. The author is James Andrew Taylor, and it's published by Oxford. And I'm embarrassed to say I knew Scannell really only by reputation. I don't think I'd ever read a single line of his verse. Micah Maddox, uh, uh, introduces us to him very skillfully and very enjoyably. And Scannell is one of those poets. We tend to think of poets now as, as relatively academic figures, usually uh, teaching at Dartmouth or something like that and spending their summers at the Breadloaf Writers' Conference and whatnot. Scannell was in the great tradition of sort of um, uh, working-class poets. Uh, he was a a working-class lad from the north of England. He was a uh, uh, what we would call an American enlisted man in the British Army during World War II. He fought in North Africa, although, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, characteristically, he, whenever the battle was over and he felt that he'd, he'd done his part, he kind of walked away from the British Army, and he seems to have done that more than once, and I think ultimately was was punished for it. But he was also, um, beginning in his youth, was an amateur boxer, and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in fact, in the early 1950s, wrote a, um, a well-regarded novel about boxing called, appropriately, The Fight. But Scannell lived up until just a few years ago. He only died in 2007, and he wrote poetry continually, and often looked back on his peripatetic life with a mixture of uh, amusement and regret, and um, his poetry is uh, the kind of poetry that I think uh, is interesting to read, partly because the sheer literary merits of it, but also if we know a little bit about Scannell's life, and like many writers, his life is very nearly as interesting as anything he wrote. Um, the poetry is a kind of long-distance uh, autobiography, and it's, it's fun and, and actually quite interesting to read. In any case, Vernon uh, Micah Maddox's um, essay 
is a, uh, um, a first-rate introduction to a subject that I think many readers will find of interest. Um, readers will also find of interest um, Michael Rosen's review of uh, Megan McArdle's new book. Megan McArdle is um, a woman who frequently writes about uh, economic subjects, and her current book from Viking is called The Upside of Down, Why Failing Well is the Key to Success. And its thesis, in effect, is that we, we are uh, often, uh, it's to our advantage sometimes to, to fail before we succeed, that you learn things, you learn how to do things differently the next time, you, you gain valuable experience by trying and failing. And one of the strengths of the United States as an economic um, entity and as an economic society is that we, we have a tendency to, to, to do just that. We are much more entrepreneurial, we're much more risk-taking than our, uh, say, European cousins. We're willing to try something, and um, when it doesn't work and we fail, we have a tendency to uh, pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off and start all over again, as the... Uh, Dorothy Field's song once had it. And that's her point is that this has uh, not only been uh, to our advantage as a society and as a, a nation, but it's something that we as individuals might want to profit from thinking about. So it's an interesting book, um, nicely introduced uh, by Michael Rosen, and that is followed by a biography of um, going back to literature, a biography of Paul DeMann called The Double Life of Paul DeMann by Evelyn Barish, Live Right as the publisher. And this is uh, reviewed in our magazine by Matthew Walther, who was a young editor at the American Spectator. Paul DeMann is, uh, once again, he's one of those figures who may not be very well known to the general public, but was important in his corner of the universe at the time and is important in many ways in re retrospect. He was a <clears throat> excuse me, literary critic and literary historian, originally from Belgium, who ultimately ended up at Yale. Uh, he came to the United States after World War, well, actually long after World War II, but he ended up in the United States in the late 1950s and, and ended up, he taught a, a couple of different places, ended up at Yale and ended up being really one of the superstars of the Yale English Department. He was one of the early and pioneering deconstructionists, which is to say one of those literary theorists who has blighted the study of literature for the past generation, he thinking that that literature is all just a social and political construct that uh, people probably in, in offices somewhere in Chicago have invented and that uh, we don't really, there's no such thing as objective truth, that there's no such thing as, it doesn't really matter um, uh, the, the beauty of the prose or the uh, sonorousness of the verse is really far less important than its political or economic significance and novels and the study of literature are emblems of uh, of economic inequality and uh, so forth and so on. In other words, the politicization of literature, which I'm glad to say has receded a little bit in the in the academy. But when he died uh, in in 1983, Paul DeMann was the really the superstar of American 
up-to-date American literary studies, and almost immediately after he died, <clears throat> the story of his life began emerging, and he was, in effect, a kind of con man. He really hardly had even any uh, academic credentials to speak of, um, certainly nothing that would get you an appointment to Yale these days. And during World War II, he was more than a collaborationist in Belgium. He was a particularly virulent anti-Semitic contributor to publications under the, during the German occupation of Belgium. And he just went from kind of one con to another and washed up on these shores and, in effect, conned his way into the halls of the Ivy League where he did astonishingly well or perhaps not so astonishingly. Um, and it's interesting, too. I mean, his reputation collapsed like a house of cards after his death, although obviously he still has his admirers. Um, and I think to some degree it discredited um, the kind of critical studies and literature that he spearheaded. But it's a, it's a, a wonderfully instructive story about, about human nature and about literary politics and certainly academic politics. And Matthew Walther does a very good job of, of, of uh, summing it up for us. This is followed by a piece by David Skeel, who is a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania, but also a, a uh, prominent Presbyterian churchman, frequently writes on religious subjects as well as antitrust law and so on. But the book that he's um, reviewing is entitled Got Religion? Question mark. How Churches, Mosques, and Synagogues Can Bring Young People Back. The author is Naomi Schaefer Riley, Riley rather, excuse me, and the publisher is Templeton. Naomi Riley uh, used to write on religion for the Wall Street Journal. Um, and her point, um, which is an interesting and perhaps inevitable one, is that young people are comparatively uninterested in organized religion. And this is true, this has probably been true generation to generation, but it's especially true now. And her concern is that um, she's not exactly proselytizing for anything in particular because she addresses all the, all the three major, major monotheistic religions equally. But I think you can argue, and she certainly does, that there are social benefits to religious practice um, that almost everybody can agree on, and it's probably a good thing to figure out ways to interest young people in returning to some kind of religious observance. And of course, historically, when that's been done, such efforts always come across as immensely patronizing and uncool and probably do more harm than good. But Naomi Riley talks about some churches, some programs, some uh, uh, things that have been done that actually have enjoyed some success in bringing millennials um, back to church. Obviously, growing a little older, getting married, having children uh, often helps, but, but she has some other suggestions, which make for interesting reading, and, and if, if you as a listener or reader are religious or not, I think you'll find it uh, interesting and instructive as well. Uh, that is followed by a piece by Daniel Ross Goodman, um, who is a writer in New York as well as a lawyer and, and rabbinical student, 
uh, reviewing a show which is currently at the Guggenheim Museum in Manhattan entitled Italian Futurism, 1909 to 1944. And Italian Futurism is a, a, a lesser known 20th century school, but a, a fascinating one, especially if you're interested in mid 20th century art. A lot of the a lot of the visions of what the future would be uh, in the early 20th century, um, the sort of things that kind of saw their ultimate culmination in the 1939 World's Fair, the, the sort of technological future of a world of railways and airships and, and, and um, uh, what we think of as modern design were really... Um, started a lot with with certain artists Italian artists in the early 20th century and um, uh, the a lot of the early manifestos about uh, the future um, uh, came out of Italy at this same time starting essentially in pre World War one but also continuing after World War one which of course in Italy meant the Mussolini era, <clears throat> which is not at all inconsistent with the visions of the future, but it's it's really in the late 19th, early 20th century that people start thinking uh, at any great length in terms of what the, what the future would bring, what the future would look like uh, from an aesthetic standpoint. It's always fun to see uh, how people extrapolated from the present into the future, which we're, of course, doing today and humans will always do but the show at the Guggenheim uh, is really quite an interesting one and if you aren't in New York or if you don't plan to be in New York between now and when the show ends in September uh, Daniel Goodman's piece is as good an introduction to the subject as I can think of and I think you'll enjoy it very much anyway that is this week's books and arts section of the weekly standard as always I am deeply appreciative of your listening and hope this will prompt you, prompt you not only to, to read the pieces I've just described, but uh, perhaps even look up the uh, books or attend the shows uh, that uh, we've written about and keep you waiting for next week's podcast, which I look forward to about a week from now. Thanks again. <laughs>